Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we concluded our review of the defense's cross-examination of firearms expert Paul Greer. In this installment, we conclude our look at Greer's testimony and day 8 of the trial. That's all coming up right after the break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It is the late afternoon of February 3rd, 2023, day 8 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. As we concluded our last episode, defense attorney Jim Griffin culminated his cross-examination of sled firearms expert Paul Greer by challenging whether Agent Greer's methods are too subjective and variable to be regarded as objective science. Judge Clifton Newman then called for a brief break. As we begin today, Prosecutor David Fernandez initiates a brief redirect of Paul Greer by handing the witness a document. Greer, I'm handing you what's been marked as State's Exhibit 400. Could you kindly review that very, very quickly and let me know if you're familiar with what it is? Uh, yes, sir. What is it? Um, this appears to be a copy of my report. It's an accurate, complete copy of your report? Uh, yes, sir. It does appear to be. Uh, all the things you just discussed today? Yes, sir. Prosecutor Fernandez then asks Agent Greer a series of questions apparently intended to counter Jim Griffin's efforts to devalue the witness's expertise in the eyes of the jury. Some of the questions concerned uh, your field. Please tell us how, how long has firearms identification and tool mark identification, how long has it been around? In its current form, um, I would say the early 1900s is when this really um, became popular and firearms identification was born um, with several um, important cases as early as the 1900s that they started looking at this evidence and looking at those individual characteristics um, through uh, microscopy. Um, so ever since that time, um, it's just evolved and, and grew with further research and support, advances in um, technology, and, um, but it's been around for, for several years. And are you familiar with any studies that were done um, utilizing what would be called consecutive barrels yes, of firearms? Explain to us what a consecutive barrel study would be and what they, uh, what's done in those. Sure. Um, when we're looking at those characteristics under the microscope um, that were imparted onto a fire bullet or a cartridge case, and we're looking at all those tiny little features, a consecutively manufactured study takes into the account of the manufacturing process. Um, so all those marks that we discussed are, are coming at, from that gun being produced at a ma by a manufacturer. Metal scraping and removing metal. Uh, so we have tools cutting and tools stamping and, and really working on hard metal surfaces. Um, so when we look at a study that has consecutively manufactured things, um, that presents an opportunity for a worst case scenario for us as examiners. If those tools were going to leave markings 
on um, other firearms. So if you had this breech face being made by the tool and it made the next one and it made the next one, those are consecutively manufactured. If there's any carryover of those characteristics from one to another, that's what that study does. It highlights that and it puts that as an emphasis as part of that study. And we as examiners are looking at that, that's our worst case scenario. If we're going to see any carryover of that tool making that, that item or that breech face, uh, we would expect to see marks. Um, there's several studies that are out there, and I've participated in several of those as part of my training, um, where we're given samples that have been fired by consecutively manufactured barrels. So if we see any agreement between each of those barrels, we should see it there. Or um, studies where we have consecutively manufactured breech faces. Again, those are breech faces made by the same tool, one right after another. And if we see agreement in there, we should see it in that study. Um, I've participated in those research projects. Some of them have been studies prior to me becoming an examiner. And I was able to clearly distinguish and accurately distinguish between those projectiles. So I was able to determine um, those projectiles were fired by this barrel, this barrel, this barrel, and this barrel. Or that cartridge case was fired by this gun with that breech face, this gun with that breech face, and this gun with that breech face. Um, so we are aware of that in our community. And we do things to um, be proactive on that. And, and that's just an example, um, and that's something I participated in and was able to um, successfully pass as part of my competency in determining um, what was fired by what in those consecutively manufactured studies. And, those were, and you were able to compare firearms that you know were consecutively manufactured one after the other, right after the other. That is correct. And uh, just for clarity, <clears throat> we're talking about, I, I'm referring to items uh, 33 and 22 on your report. That would be the uh, item 33 being the uh, blackout rifle, and then item 22 on the camouflage Black Eagle 3. Yes, sir. Um, your results for some of those were, when you say inconclusive, that, that, what does that mean? Does that mean that they could have been fired or that they, you, you just can't determine? Uh, that's correct. Inconclusive is a, one of our conclusions that we can issue. When there's not enough agreement or disagreement there in those uh, tiny microscopic characteristics, um, so what inconclusive means is it's possible it could have been fired by that gun, and it's possible that it may not have been fired by that gun. Prosecutor Fernandez next finds and presents an exhibit to Mr. Greer contained in a small bag. Partner, attention to states, uh, to your item number 165, states exhibit 147. Remind us again what that item is. Uh, yes, sir. This was a Winchester 12-gauge uh, shot shell. Um, and on the side of the shot shell, it's stamped dry lock, three inch, two. On the packaging for uh, Stakes Exhibit 147, it says from nightstand in Paul's um, room. Council asked you a question about, you know, your field being an applied science, just so we understand what an applied science is. Are there any other examples of fields that are applied in that general realm of applied sciences? Uh, yes, sir. A lot of uh, what we do as firearms examiner is learned through our process of training and looking at samples and learning the job. It's kind of like, um, if you will, a physician. Um, they go to school, um, they learn a lot in their medical uh, school, but they still do a residency program, if you will. So they're on the job, doing on the job training. Defense attorney Jim Griffin rises to object. Your Honor, object. Comparing it, what he does to... So they learn things in school. Um, the firearms identification is not something that you can necessarily go to a school and learn to do. Um, you can't get a four-year degree and become a firearms examiner the next day. 
Um, there are universities across the nation that have firearms identification as part of their firearms program, and they're teaching that component. But in order to um, achieve your competency at this, um, you, you need the on-the-job training. You need the experience um, in, in looking at these samples and knowing how to evaluate uh, the markings that we're looking at on these um, ammunition components. Fernandez then displays one final document on the monitor for the witness. Lastly, um, Agent Greer, uh, Mr. Greer, I'm going to refer you to State's Exhibit 400. I'm going to put that on the screen. I'm going to direct your attention to item 128. Can you see that on your screen, Mr. Greer? Yes, sir, I can. Specifically, your findings concerning 2 through 7. You see where my pen's pointing? Yes, sir, I do. Which items were 2 through 7? Um, those were from markers. Two, three, four, five, six, and seven, respectively. And from my understanding of the crime scene, those were the ones um, that were located around um, Mar Margaret Murdoch's body. Items two through seven found around Maggie's body. Items 35 through 37 and 39, where were those located? Um, those were from the side entrance door, which would be the door, um, I believe, coming out of the, the gun room area. And items 108, 113, 116 through 17, and 122, where were those located? Um, those were from various areas, um, thought to be from the shoot field or from the field. And tell me again what they, what your conclusion was. I was able to determine that uh, based on matching characteristics in the mechanism marks that items 2 through 7, 35 through 37, 39, 108, 113, 116 through 117, and 122 had all been loaded into, extracted, and ejected from the same firearm at some previous time. Nothing further. Thank you. Further examination? No, Your Honor. Uh, thank you. You must step down. After Agent Greer leaves the stand, Judge Clifton Newman dismisses the jury for the weekend. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. After the jury leaves the courtroom, Prosecutor Creighton Waters raises an issue related to comments made by the defendant during a visit by state law enforcement officials to his Moselle property three days after the murders. We do have another issue, which I believe I had indicated to Your Honor, perhaps in a pretrial uh, conversation uh, as to a, a conversation that took place a few days after uh, the crimes occurred, uh, in which uh, there were a number of individuals present. 
Mr. Murdoch was present. I don't know the contents of that meeting uh, because I've been out of an abundance of caution, have stayed away from that, uh, and I believe that we may have a little bit of testimony just on whether or not there is any attorney-client client privilege to that conversation. I've been careful throughout this investigation preparation not to be privy to that, uh, but I do believe that it is not an attorney-client privilege conversation, but I'd like the court's ruling on that before I came privy to the contents of that. That's the only uh, other issue at this time that I think would be addressed in, in camera that morning. Defense Attorney Dick Harpudlian rises to respond. Honor, and my that sort of surprise here, was that, were those conversations recorded? No. And I mentioned this in our pre-trial. Neither one of us know what contents of those conversations are. I believe Mr. Griffin was present at this meeting. This is exactly why I wanted the, the court's ruling before I became privy to the contents of the defendant's statements at that meeting. No, we're not quite sure, but we'll wait with bated breath to hear whatever it is. Can you be more specific as to what you're talking about, Mr. Wardis? From my, my understanding, there was a meeting uh, or some sort of gathering in which Mr. Griffin, Griffin and Mr. Murdoch and then a number of other individuals were present in which the defendant made some statements. The contents. Individuals? No, no. I think uh, some of his partners and, and other individuals, maybe some family, uh, to which I have never been privy to the contents. However, I would like to know the contents, but I've been careful out of an abundance of caution not to ever become privy until I had a ruling from the court that there was no attorney-client privilege because of the presence of third parties to that conversation. So I would like to address that with the court, and if the court believes that and rules that there is no attorney-client privilege, then I may, uh, you know, at the appropriate time, examine people who were present at that uh, conversation as to what the defendant said. And is that in relation to financial crimes, or? No, sir, that would be in relation to the murders of Maggie and Paul. But I, it is an in-camera matter that I, if we have the time available, I wanted to raise that with the court. Maybe we can go ahead and knock that one out as well. All right. Any thoughts by the defense? This time, Jim Griffin responds for the defense. Your Honor, what he's referring to is, and I, it was on Thursday, June the 10th, when SLED came to John Marvin Murdoch's hunting property to interview Alec, to interview John Marvin Murdoch, uh, Randy Murdoch, Buster Murdoch, and before the, and I was there to, to represent Alec for purposes of that, before SLED got there, we were all in the house. I have no idea what beyond that he's talking about. I mean, what, what was supposedly said or heard, or I have no idea, but beyond that, I don't know of any conversations that he's trying to find the substance of and who he's going to get them from. I, Your Honor, I think that's just it. I, you know, we would have a witness as to the circumstances of who was present, and in the event that Your Honor rules that because of the presence of third parties, it was not a protected conversation, then I would then, you know, become privy or ask to become privy to the content of that. Uh, and, and that is the thing by inquiring of who? Well, the witness who were present, and so I'm going to call one of those, which the would be... partners. Exactly. And, and again, I wouldn't even have to do that on the stand. I would just want Your Honor's blessing before I did that because of an abundance of caution and protection of the attorney-client privilege. At that point, I could, you know, offline become privy to the content of it. It may be nothing. I've just been told that there was that meeting and, I, and the circumstances of it, and I don't believe it's protected, and so I'd like to know... Uh, you know, what the defendant said at that meeting. Sounds like he's asking for a deposition, Your Honor. He's got no right to an evidentiary hearing about what happened at a meeting 
in the course of a trial. He's got no right to compel people to come testify so we can find out what was said. That's discovery. I mean, you know, state grand jury allows him to do that, but there's no rule that permits him to conduct a deposition, whether in court or out of court, and that's what he's trying to, to do. Not asking to conduct a deposition, Your Honor. I've, I've actually been doing this out of abundance of caution and protection of the defendant's rights and making sure that we didn't cross the line without the court's uh, input. And again, the content may be something that's useful or not. Judge Clifton Newman asks for written arguments from the parties on the matter before he makes a decision. Well, if you'd like to brief or send a memo or cases to the court regarding statements made um, in the presence of counsel and third parties, whether that's protected by attorney-client privilege or not, then the court can address the issue. And with that, Judge Newman brings day eight of the trial to a close. On the morning of February 6th, day nine of the Murdoch trial, outside the presence of the jury, the prosecution calls Mark Tinsley to the stand to resume the in-camera hearing before Judge Newman so that he may determine the admissibility of evidence of the defendant's financial crimes in his murder trial. Mr. Tinsley is the lawyer who represented the family of Mallory Beach in the suit against the Murdoch family for the death of Ms. Beach in a boating accident caused by Paul Murdoch. The witness appears to be in his early 50s. He sports short graying hair and a goatee and wears a dark gray suit, a gray tie, and a white button-down shirt. Prosecutor Creighton Waters handles the questioning for the state. If you would, just quickly tell us what you do for a living and what, what kind of practice that you have. Uh, my name is Mark Tinsley. I practice law in Allendale. I have a fairly uh, statewide practice, primarily personal injury plaintiff's work. How long have you been practicing in Allendale? Since 2000, so 22, 23 years. Do you have a statewide practice or is it primarily? To the extent I want it statewide. I mean, I, I handle cases statewide if, if I'm inclined to handle those. Primarily focused in the 14th Circuit, is that fair? 14th and the 1st. And the 1st. You know the defendant, Alec Murdoch? I do. And how did you get to know him? He's in, he practiced law in the adjoining county. Uh, I had a number of cases with his firm, small bars in the two counties, and known him since shortly after I came down there. And do you know other lawyers in the what used to be known as PMPD firm? All of them. And are those uh, individuals that you may have had cases with or just generally in the same line of work with over the years? Yes. I want to take you to uh, February 19, and are you familiar with the uh, boat case? Unfortunately. And do you represent Beach family, uh, the lawsuit related to the death of Ms. Mallory Beach? I do. And ultimately, you ended up uh, accepting that representation and filing suit against a number of defendants, including uh, the criminal defendant here, Alec Murdoch. Is that I did. Correct? Tell the court just very quickly who the defendants that you sued, at least initially, at, at when this case started. Uh, Mr. Waters, I, my recollection is, is that I sued uh, Alec Murdoch. I know I sued Luther's which is a bar downtown in Beaufort. I sued the Woods, which was where the kids had gone for an oyster roast. I sued the Murdoch Family Trust, uh, which owned the property where the boat was launched from, and we believed that there could have been some drinking that went on there. I'm not 100% certain in the first lawsuit if I sued Buster Murdoch, which is uh, Alex's son, but I, I think those were the defendants initially. And, and maybe, uh, maybe Randolph Murdoch personally as well. Creighton Waters moves on to ask Mr. Tinsley about the beginning of his representation of the Beach family. Did your client, Renee Beach, have any particular experience at the scene that informed how you were handling this particular case as you went forward? 
she certainly had an experience that prompted the call to me. Now, can you explain that to the court, please? She wanted to go down to uh, the bridge where the boat crash had occurred. I don't believe, I think this was either Monday or Tuesday, so the, the crash happens early Sunday morning. The scene's cordoned off. Uh, she's told she can't go down there. Just a few minutes later, Alex's father and his wife pull up in a car, and they're waved under the tape, and they go down to the bridge. And she was very upset by that. Did she, um, in your discussions with her, did she give you any particular instructions about uh, proceeding forward in this particular case, as part and based on that experience? Nobody really gives me instructions. Waters next asks the witness about his understanding of Murdoch's insurance coverage as it would relate to the Beach case. Not long after you get involved in this case, uh, did you have any uh, um, chance to review and look at any insurance coverages that may be available to the defendant? My recollection is within the week, certainly two-week kind of time frame after the boat crash, Danny Henderson, who was handling the boat crash as Alex's personal lawyer, brought me all of Alex's insurance policies, and so I reviewed them at that time, before I filed the lawsuit. Now, what was the purpose of you reviewing those policies? In a civil case, the only thing that we can do to try to, under the law, make a party whole is recover money damages. And oftentimes, when we are drafting lawsuits, we will try to draft the initial lawsuit to make sure that there's insurance coverage. So, so that was the reason I wanted the, the coverage. And beyond that, sometimes, like I did with some of the initial defendants, you can, because of the circumstances, because of the culpability, how bad the liability is, how catastrophic the loss is. Many times insurance companies can be leveraged to pay their insurance out, to get, the, get these people closure. No amount of money is gonna make them whole. So the best that we can do is try to get them some closure and help them heal. All right, and what did you determine as you looked at what coverages uh, were available to Alec that potentially could be relevant to the boat crash? Well, so there was, $500,000 that Progressive had on the boat. It was a watercraft policy, although I've never seen the policy. That insurance was offered almost immediately to all of the victims, not just the Beach family. There were two other girls on the boat uh, and two other boys, and in, including Paul Murdoch. And so when I reviewed the policies, it was apparent to me that there was no possibility that any of the insurance that he had at the time of the boat crash would apply to this. And if there was a possibility, it would be limited to an idea that uh, Alec was negligent in allowing Buster to give Paul his duplicate ID that he had made so Paul could purchase alcohol. Did uh, Alec have a policy, an umbrella policy with Nautilus at this point in time that was available? He, he, he did not. He had... Um, that to the court. Why that was not available, please? It appeared from review of the records that um, there was an open claim when the policy came up for renewal, and that open claim was the Satterfield matter, and that it was Nautilus and I think Lloyd's of London, and they would not renew the policy, and so he had to then seek other coverage, and what he ended up uh, was with Philadelphia, and it was a commercial hunting operation policy that contained uh, very broad watercraft exclusion. So they even uh, barred a negligent entrustment claim uh, as it related to watercraft. And that Philadelphia policy depended on Moselle being considered as a commercial hunting lodge, is that correct? 
not only Moselle, but the occurrence, in other words, whatever it is that causes there to be coverage, had to arise out of a commercial operation, as I read the policy. Realizing that, as it related to Ellick, um, specifically, there was, was he essentially underinsured as it related to what the recovery you were seeking in this particular case? Oh, absolutely. Right. And what was your ultimate goal, though, in seeking recover as, recovery as it related to Ellick in this case? Well, it changed over time. I mean, initially, I believed that the case would settle. I didn't see how people could ignore uh, the significance of the loss, the public support of the community for the Beach family, and then the hue and cry as it related to the liability and the Murdochs in particular. And so, you know, it, it changes over time, but the one consistency was to get the case resolved. Okay. And uh, did you make it clear to uh, Alex's attorneys that uh, you were seeking a personal recovery that he would have to pay as opposed to just accessing what insurance co coverage was available? Always. And that was consistent all the way through, is that all, right? all the way through. Were you making substantial demands to the defense that Alex pay a uh, substantial recovery personally? You know, I, I think by, by most standards, and I don't want to seem crass when I say this, but the Beach family stood on the causeway for eight days while they're daughter's body was in the water. I don't know that there's any amount of money that would somebody would willingly take to go through what they've gone through. But if you were asking a lawyer who does civil work, was I making a substantial demand in terms of a settlement? I think that most people would say yes. In your assessment, did that come as a bit of a, or did the defense express to you surprise uh, that you were seeking a personal recovery from Allied rather than just simply trying to access what insurance coverage he had. Yeah, some, some, some people did. John Tiller was primarily handling the case for Alec, and I didn't get that from John, but, but I got it from a lot of people. And with that, we bring to an end this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we continue our review of the in-camera testimony of Mark Tinsley. Also, check out the Crime Story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.